Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Navy SEAL motivational speaker, best-selling author for adults and kids, human performance coach, YouTube personality, and all-around awesome guy, David Rutherford. Now, for the past 25 years, I've been exploring and researching the human condition in my attempt to discover what enables individuals and teams to succeed in every environment imaginable. What I've discovered are some undeniable truths about what drives humans to succeed and fail physically, mentally, and spiritually. I call these discovers the frog logic concepts. My podcast has one mission, and that's to help you ignite the fire in your gut so you too can lead an ultra-motivated, purposeful life like I do. So stand by, because it's time to get motivated. Hoo-yah! I want to be the best. I want to do the coolest things. I want to earn the respect of those people around me. I want to push myself. I want to, I want to know that what I'm, I'm doing is it has meaning. I want to influence in, uh, the people around me, my teammates, and, and allow them to know that they can count on me. I want to live with honor. I want to know that I'm making the most of every single day I'm above dirt. I want to make an impact. Man, if you're saying these things and you're on fire, I mean, literally, waking up in the morning, you're dousing yourself in, in the uh, motivational kerosene and you're, you're sparking that match and you're literally just charging into the fray on fire. Flames coming off your head, just moving forward and people are like, whoa, look at that dude, he's on fire. Now, obviously, the journey you're on is epic. And it's, it's like that because there's a reason, right? Or... That's not happening to you. Maybe that isn't you, right? Well, my question to you is what's stopping you? What's keeping you from realizing your dreams? Now, my guess, you know, after all this time, after all these discoveries, after being a Navy SEAL, going through that, right? Being an international uh, training and security specialist for the government in uh, Blackwater, and training thousands of people and being doing this motivational speaker for 10 years, working with the biggest companies on the planet, I've learned a couple things. And, and I'm willing to bet I, I got a good idea what's stopping you from realizing your dreams. I got a good idea how the negative insurgency is, is, is crushing you right now. And it's coming from the people outside who are telling you you can't do that, you won't do it, that you'll never be able to do that. There's no way you could do that, dude. Or, wow, you know, I, I'd pick something a lot safer in your life. Something that's more uh, steady. That you have better consistency. And, you know, you want to do those things. You want to make the smart choice. You know, or worse, maybe you're telling yourself. You're, maybe you're telling yourself inside your mind. You're going like this. You know what? Every day you wake up and you're like, wow, I hope today's going to be a good day. Man, oh man, I, not another day. I don't want to go back to work. I don't want to go to school. Man, there's no way I'm going to be able to get this done on time. I don't have enough money. I can't, I, I can't do this, man. I don't have the training. I don't, nobody's out there. Everybody's out to get me. Man, there's always a, there's somebody out there who's always stifling my abilities. They're calling me down. I'm, I don't have the same opportunities as those folks over there. Ah! 
Why are you doing that? Why are you allowing that negative speak to deafen you inside? Because you know something, you know, that's what's stopping you. Do you know what's stopping you? Your limits. That's right. All these things, all these external forces, all this this commotion, this 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 wind, right? This negativity that's blowing against you, man, are creating limits in yourself. And those limits are going to destroy you unless you learn how to destroy them. So that's what today's show is all all about, right? And tonight, the title of of this uh, episode of the Frog Logic Podcast, and this is show number six, right? This is called Destroying Limits, Pushing Performance Thresholds. And we've got a special guest today, man. This guy is just a, he's a badass JSOC operator and vetrepreneur out there. I mean, this guy's amazing. I met him a, a, a couple months ago at, at, doing, at the Defend Freedom Tour down in West Palm. I spoke with him and I got a chance. And within 30 seconds, this dude was blowing my mind with the stuff he understood about limits. He was blowing my mind with the psychology he understood about human performance. He was blowing my mind with the experience that he's gone through, how he's trained other people to destroy limits. I mean, this guy's absolutely amazing. And he's going to be my special interview today, so stand by a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to get to him in a second. So, you know, if, if you want to understand, man, why I do this, because this is my mission. It's my, I, I was called into action to do this. On my second trip to Afghanistan, working with Blackwater, I literally had was overcome by, by I like to think God tapped me on the shoulder and said, all right, Rut, here's the deal, bud. I need you to, you need to, you need to ant halt and you need to shift focus, reset your mission profile, and you need to charge down this path in life. And that path is to influence other people and help people realize how to defeat the negative insurgency in their lives, how to face the combat of life every day with some core ideas and concepts that work. They're proven. Now, the beauty of frog logic, and that's what I call it, it's Navy SEAL motivational training or my motivational training, right? The the cool thing about the frog logic concepts is, yeah, it's about my experience for sure, but I also combine, you know, 70 plus years of UDT Navy SEAL operations, training and elite performance to really facilitate a, a focused training program for all of you to embrace so you can, you know, charge force into the breach, <laughs> right? And that's what I do. So if you want to know more about Frog Logic and who I am and, and what it's all about, where I come from, man, just check us out at teamfroglogic.com. That's teamfroglogic.com. I got tons of stuff there. Or, you know, check out all my, I do a ton of motivational speaking, like, Anywhere from, you know, 60 to 70 events a year with the, the, the world's biggest companies and teams. I work with the Red Sox recently. Uh, I work with uh, Bank of America. I mean, you name it, I work with it. College teams. I work with individuals. I do private coaching with, you know, uh, everybody from athletes to venture capitalists to lawyers to just people struggling to figure out the right mission to be on. And I've wrote, I've written a bunch of books. I got two books out there, or actually, uh, a, a, an adult book called Forging Self Confidence: Eight Missions to Forge Your Self Confidence. I got a kids book about PT. We're getting ready to release our next kids book, which is an anti-bully book. Stay tuned for that. Uh, and you can find all this stuff on our web store, where we sell T-shirts, we sell, uh, you know, a DVD of me speaking, we sell all kinds of cool stuff, man. And 
Uh, so check that out. And, and if you if you just want some free motivational media that matters in your life, then listen to my podcast, the Frog Logic Podcast. And I've also got 85 other shows that I used to be on, run a show that calls Navy SEAL Radio. And with over a million point two downloads on that show, uh, and, and I'm going to be uploading all those to SoundCloud and to our website here so you can find them all there. But then the other podcast, too. Uh, um, I got YouTube videos with over 2.5 million views on those. You'll love those. A little motivational video for you to tune in. And then I'm on social media. I'm on Facebook at Team Frog Logic. I'm on uh, uh, Twitter. We just crested over 10,000 followers on Twitter at Team Frog Logic. On Instagram, just hit 7,000 followers there. And, and I produce a, a daily motivational dose of Frog Logic, and as well as pass cool motivational stories your way. So that's what Frog Logic is, man. This is my life. This is what I do. And I do it for you, right? Because I've realized I've been blessed by being part of the SEAL teams, by being part of uh, friends with amazing human beings that have taught me some incredible life lessons that I've turned into these, these ideas, these Frog Logic concepts. So let's get into today's, all right? Because let's first start out, and I always like to, before we get going on my shows, I like to define what we're talking about. And so let's define the, the term limits, right, or limit. And uh, I, I couldn't find one on Wikipedia other than the mathematical definition of limits, and that, I, I watched the Khan Academy vi video, which is out there, really cool, uh, highly recommend that if you, if you want to just do some free learning, man, Khan Academy's epic, uh, it was really cool, but we're not talking math, we're it's kind of, we're talking, you know, personality, we're talking psychology, physiology, all right? So limits, here you go. Uh, it's a noun, a point or level beyond which something does not or may not extend or pass. Two, a restriction on the size or amount of something permissible or possible. All right, limits, right? Now, we live with these things in our lives. We live with them when, in this idea that I always focus my training, my, my ideas, my thoughts, my, my vision on, which is, you know, in, in, now this is based on research too, as, as personal and, and as well as academic research. When you look throughout history, all civilizations or cultures or whatever, I always really focus around three main things I call the triad, which is the physical, mental, and spiritual self. And limits are placed on each one of those category, categories every single day of our lives. Every day we're above dirt, some type of limit is, is happening in those three spectrums of our life. And those are the, the, the three critical ones. And you need to understand when you talk about limits in your life and you talk about those three areas, because those are the three areas, <clears throat> excuse me, those are the three areas you have to work on consistently. And, and, the, and the work is never done. You never stop your training physically. You never get to stop your training mentally. And you better not stop your training spiritually. Right? Because those limits are always being pushed on us by the negative insurgency. External and external forces that want us to stop. That our momentum to go the other way. To cower to the, for the fear to get the best of us. Now... What we're gonna we're gonna address briefly before we get into this awesome interview is we're gonna talk about these things, right? Now, how and why do limits happen in our life? I think if you were to just stop for a minute and ponder, right? Hmm, hmm. Why do I have limits in my life? Where do they come from? How am I going to get rid of them? 
Well, I'll tell you how, man. There are, there, are, there are natural limits, right? There are learned limits. There are fear-based limits. And thank God there are positive limits in our lives. Now, the natural limits are, let me tell you what. My dream was to play f- football in college at a D1 football, right? Now, thank God when I got to Penn State, my competition, I was going to try and walk on a plane. I played lacrosse there. I was going to try and walk on a football team, but the starting freshman quarterback was Kerry Collins. Now, I quickly learned <laughs> that a six foot five, 250 pound freshman quarterback who can throw the ball 80 yards standing flat foot, his limits, <laughs> his natural limits are beyond mine. At six foot, 155 pounds that year. <laughs> now, I had a gun, I could throw, and I knew the game, but I was not Kerry Collins. So, natural limits, the things that we know that we just can't do. Right? There is a, a limit. All right, learned limits. Right? Now, these are the ones that get start getting tricky. These are the, the influences, right? Saying, hey, you will never be able to do this. Or, or if I learn a limit of, uh, you know, uh, wh- how far I can go mentally in my life. Or, you know, you have that parent who's always beating you down. Or, you know, a teacher that doesn't believe in you, that forces, you're like, why are you so dumb? You know, you'll never make it anywhere in your life. You might as well just learn how to dig ditches. Right? And trust me, I've been a knuckle dragger a long time. I know that vibe. I know that feeling. Man, if I had a dime for everybody that told me I'd never pass, get through buds, I'd be a, not really wealthy, man, but I'd have some dough left. Probably I'd spend it, though, real fast. But anyways... You know, that learned limitation. And you teach yourself as well too, right? There's a caveat on how you process information that, you know, the more information and experience that you have, the greater thing, the greater places you or or reference points you have to call on. So if you have failed at something miserably over and over and over, you'll automatically perceive the fact that that you've reached your limit there. And if you don't do the good deductive reasoning on whether or not you had the, good, the right training, you were around the right people, the right team supporting you, you know, you start to believe those learned limits. And that's a slippery slope right there. That's what gets people in trouble, right? Because failure is a huge component of how we learn our limitations. It's a big deal. And, and you know, just like learned limitations, we learn fear. Now, you're also programmed, right? There's a natural programming of fear physiologically, so fear's always going to be with you. There's no such thing as fearless, right? There's been a couple studies out there where they found some woman, and one in particular that's referenced a lot, where this woman had uh, malfunctioning amygdalas in her brain, and so she couldn't conceptualize fear. (laughs) So if there was a tiger or a lion standing in front of her, she wouldn't get that she's going to get her face ripped off. She just didn't have that. But everybody else, all of us, all of us have fear. It's physiologically wired for it, right? And that fear, based on your life, produces limits, right? Yeah, those cognitive limits, the spiritual limits, the physical, the mental, the spiritual, the emotional limits based on fear. Now, you're also taught fear, just like the other learned limitation. You're taught things to be afraid of. And you teach yourself to be afraid of things. Generally through that that uncomfortable pain of failure. Now, one of the things about pain, man, we compartmentalize that pain. We don't want to face it. We don't want to go near it. So again, limits. 
You know, limits are a, a product of culture as well, too. I've been researching culture for the past year, and man, you wouldn't believe it. How pronounced limitations are from particular cultures. Where you grew up, who you're from, where you were raised, what's the culture that you're in. Limits, limits, limits. Whether it's through all these other, you know, learned behaviors or understanding ideas, man, learn. You know, fear, fear, fear. Inhib, inhibit, inhibitate, you know, being inhibited by the your culture and what's pressed against you, man. Limits. Now, here's the deal, though. And I and listen, I've seen this over and over and over and over again. I am the human being that believes out there that everybody possesses a fire in their gut. Everybody possesses the opportunity to be successful in something. Right? Now, you know, what that positive limit is, man, is based on your understanding of your own performance thresholds. Now, Google defines performance thresholds as he says, performance thresholds are the maximum acceptable variances for specific metrics you can use to assess an individual project or group of projects, such as a portfolio. They are the upper limit parameter values you can set a performance earned value index calculations. Now, granted, that's in the pro- that's in wealth and ma- wealth management and all that shit, but I, it applies to human beings as well too, right? But the overwhelming reality is. You don't know what your performance thresholds are. You just don't. Unless you've, you've, you've gone down that road where you're like, man, I'm going to figure this stuff out. I'm going to figure out what the hell I need to do to find out what my performance thresholds. I'm going to have people apply pain to me on a regular basis, and I'm going to see how I react, and I'm going to get up. I'm going to rise from the ashes. I'm going to get back in the fight and all those things, man, instead of just using them as cliches to describe other things. In actual real action to improve yourself, to test yourself physically, mentally, and spiritually. Because you know what happens when you start to understand what those true performance thresholds are all about? You start to understand your real value. Right? Or, as I like to call it, the truth of your purpose. Now ask yourself right now, do you have a purpose in your life? Do you? What is it? Are you going to give me some canned answer like, oh, my purpose is to be a good husband or a good father or good wife or a good brother or a good sister? Or I want to be a good person. I want to be faithful to God. Is that your purpose? Check, Roger. Well, how do you do it? What's the specificity? What are your limits of your pur- purpose and your performance? How far are you willing to go? I always think about performance thresholds in terms of my brothers in the teams, guys I know and what they've, an amazing thing they've done. Just this past Friday, I was hanging out with my brother Marcus Luttrell. But I tell you what, he knows his performance threshold, doesn't he? Just go read his book, The Lone Survivor. You know, this morning I was reading my Bible and I was reading about Paul. I mean, that kid was, that dude, that cat was in three shipwrecks, dude. He kept going, performance threshold. So if you attach to your purpose, truth and value of what you can do, real value, think about how far you can go. Think about what's actually going to stop you, man. 
That's where you start to understand these things, right? No, actually knowing what you can do, right? And that knowing, right? That knowing of, of where you can operate and how far you can go. Now, all of a sudden, you can start reaching out for the, the help that you need that you can't do. Because granted, you're not going to be great at everything. That's given. There's, there's a gazillion other people who are better than you, who can help you, who want to help you. That's called your team life, right? And hopefully you're living that team life. Because when you hit that performance threshold, you're going to need help. And there are a lot of people that will be out there. If you're, if you're squared away, if you're honorable, you, you live with integrity. I mean, if you're a turd, then forget it, man. Nobody's going to help you. You just you just tap out. You just reach those thresholds and forget it. You're done. Now, another key point of understanding your value or your truth or your purpose is it helps you understand and embrace your fears because that's what you got to do. You got to learn to embrace your fears in life because you can't defeat them, right? And so by embracing your fears and learning to manage those and learning to, to, to employ, you know, utilize them as strength and focus and drive as a powerful tool, that will catapult your self-confidence to another level to where you can maximize performance and hit those thresholds if you choose to, especially with the help of a good team. Then you are truly living with purpose. I don't know if you've ever felt that in your life. I felt it multiple times. I feel it right now as, as, as I'm talking into this microphone, as I'm staring at that GoPro right now. I'm thinking about the fact that I'm living out my purpose right now with focus, with conviction. And I'll tell you right now, I guarantee I haven't maxed out my threshold of performance in delivering these messages. And I'm just getting started. And I've been at it 10 years. Been podcasting, hosting a radio show for three now. I'm just getting ready to get going, man. Is it scary? Heck yeah. I mean, you know, the bigger you get, the more people know, the more better you got to bring content. But guess what? I believe in what I'm saying. I believe in the authenticity of what I've seen, of what I've read, what I've studied, what I know is true in terms of performance. Do you know yours? Because that's the key. If you want to destroy your limits and realize your performance thresholds, then you better live with purpose. All right. Now, that's my intro, man. I hope you're digging it. I hope you're hearing, you're hearing, you're on board with it. Now, what we're going to do now is we're going to jump into this interview. And, and man, it's, it's so uh, just such an honor. I'm going to read you a brief bio. Before we get this going, okay? So here you go. The, our guest today, like I said, I met this cat about two months ago at the Defend Freedom Tour in West Palm. And and uh, Mrs. Vaughn asked me to be participate in that uh, and share my insights on 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 pain and, and culture and culture, the SEAL teams with a, a great crowd. And, and, and there was a guy there. His name was Jason Beardsley. And he, man, big, you know, awesome, loving, huge smile on his face guy. And right away, we just connected. We just bonded because there was something about him. He got it. He heard it. He understood it. And he really is an amazing, huge, unbelievable guy. And let me read you a little bit about his his background, okay? 
Jason is a decorated military veteran with a combined 22 years of experience in the Army and Navy and over 15 years leading Army Special Operations and Joint Special Operations Task Forces with hostile deployments to Iraq, the Horn of Africa, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. After enlisting in the Navy in 1990, he joined the Army Special Operations Forces in 94 and moved into Joint Special Operations in 2005. Jason's been awarded two bronze stars in sustained combat operations. It was part of a select group of individuals trusted to accomplish some of the most dangerous and covert tactical missions in support of the U.S. military action in the global war on terrorism. He's an expert in military intelligence, diplomatic security, foreign internal defense, unconventional war, counterterrorism. He speaks regularly to audiences about his military experience with context of foreign policy, our nation's unique history, and how to relate to our civic rights and responsibilities. Well, stand by, because this one's going to blow you away. All right, everybody. So this is exactly what you've been waiting for. My whole lead up. I know I was I was long winded as I typically do get, but th- let me tell you why. Because when when you get a person like my next guest that's on coming on the podcast, it totally changes the dynamic, right? Because when you get someone else's perspective that you have a profound amount of respect for, that you know that they have influenced a, a great deal of people that have contributed to this uh, uh, our success in America on and on the battlefield at so many different levels, I mean, that, that gets you fired up, man. That gets the juices going. So it, it is my distinct privilege and honor, and, and I'm just super fired up to welcome my guest, Mr. Jason Beardsley to the to the Frog Logic podcast. Jason, thanks for coming on. Well, no, thank you for that. Uh, that's uh, those are high water marks, and uh, hopefully we'll get somewhere near that today. But uh, I'm really pleased and honored to be here with you, David. And uh, it, I could say the same back. Uh, just being around you, getting to know you, hearing um, your thoughts and your heart for what what you're doing, uh, amazing. It needs to be done, and uh, there's no better. Uh, I would say advocate for those uh, high-performance attributes and how we, we got crafted the way we did uh, than, uh, than the platform and the mechanisms and the methods you're using. So, oh, uh, honor to be here. Cool, cool. All right. So, let's just jump right into this. And Because and, I know you and I could go off on a tangents and just reminisce and tell old stories for days. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening going, yeah, that's what we want. That's what we want. But, but listen, most of most of what Jason's done, nobody could talk about ever. So don't get your panties in a bunch because we're not going to tell stories. All right. But he knows everything about a lot of stuff. All right. Here we go. So let's just jump right in. First, let's just give a, a quick background to everybody so they understand that when you're sharing the when we start talking about those performance thresholds later, so they really get an idea of your process, what happened you know, where you started, where you've been and where you are, where you are now. Okay, great. Yeah, no, I, uh, really succinctly just to kind of put it in a, a little box first, you know, big picture first, and then we'll, uh, we can drill into details. But, you know, I started my path, uh, well before I even joined the military, I was, uh, excited to be part of a Boy Scout, uh, Boy Scouts of America. And I had great leadership. So, uh, these are guys that pushed us and, uh, really conditioned our mindsets for something that I think, uh, tools that, uh, I would utilize down the road. Uh, but, um, like you, David, and, uh, maybe this is a surprise to some of your, uh, listeners, but, um, from a, from the moment I uh, understood the military ethos, I, I had nothing in mind but becoming a SEAL. Yeah! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
I watched the same video you did, Be Someone Special, and <laughs> I, uh, you know, I was done. I was done for. So, uh, no, geez, remember the, the flight suits and the, and, the, and the old black armor and the MP5s? Man, I've watched that thing so many times, and uh, it was all I ever wanted. I thought, this this is it. So, you know, I was a swim fiend. I love the water. I love the ocean. Uh, and uh, set off on a course to be a Navy SEAL, joined the Navy in 1990, uh, pre-Gulf War, and uh, was uh, was pleased uh, beyond uh, belief to have an ap- application to BUDS uh, submitted. Uh, I ran into some uh, early difficulties um, and then uh, got into BUDS, was there for about nine months uh, to include a medical role back, uh, bilateral uh, inguinal hernias. Yeah. And, uh, and so like, yeah, I think you mentioned once, uh, one of the stories I heard you talk about one of the worst days of my life, like you was having the med, uh, roll out of the class being uh, taken away from the people that you, you felt you were grown up with. And then, uh, and then I ended up in, uh, probably the worst place I could have ever imagined, which was the U S Navy fleet. He's oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. gray and underway. <laughs> Uh, bell bottoms and uh, swabbing decks. I was uh, sent out to the Persian Gulf War, and uh, I feel like uh, something I did there had to contribute to our success because we got it done that quickly. Uh, but uh, you know, that's just a lie I tell myself. It was uh, the paint so well. <laughs> I know it was really awful, and I'll tell you, David. Though uh, so much of my learning came on that ship, where uh, you know I didn't do I didn't do everything I should have to, to have been uh, sort of the the outstanding 4.0 sailor that I should have been. And uh, I regretted that later and promised that I would never, uh, you know, never do that again. My disposition was not uh, where it should have been while I was serving uh, those chiefs and those senior chiefs on, on board that ship. So I made a promise um, that I ended up having to have, having to cash in a little bit later. Uh, never make promises you don't want to keep. Uh, and I said, uh, I will never I will never do that again. And uh, so years go by. I, I was uh, at a low point like you uh, have described. And uh, I found um I found a group called the U.S. Navy, uh, Army Special Forces, Green Berets. Now, and, how did you, uh, how you, know, did you uh, find them? How, I mean, well, I mean, you're, here you are. You, I, you know, you had shared a little bit of the story, but you're on a ship, then you're off a ship, and then you're at home. How the yeah. heck do you all of a sudden find selection yeah. in Green Beret training? That's a great question. So, you know, uh, somewhere along the path in the Navy, someone had mentioned something about the uh, Special Forces. I just knew it's got nothing to do with me. But uh, now I'm home and I've got a friend who pointed out and said, hey, you, you ought to check into this. There was a group there, 19th, uh, 19th group has a, a company out of uh, Columbus, Ohio. He said, you ought to check this out, go down, do a do a train up with them and uh, see if you like it. And uh, in my head, I knew how ah, this isn't going to work out. It's going to be a bunch of uh, rednecks and pickup trucks with a Confederate flag drinking old Milwaukee by a fire. And I thought, nah, man. <laughs> but, you know, I was at a low point. So, you know, desperate, <laughs> desperate. Uh, I showed up and um, I got to tell you, man, it was it was, uh, it was was like uh, lightning just uh, strikes at your heart. I went with a great master sergeant, let it us on a eight mile ruck march and uh, you know, combat swim and fatigues and patrolling through the night. I got uh, I was handed a, a bag of live weapons and a two and a half ton truck to meet up a, a link up on a nighttime ambush on a you know to practice raid on a so dam cool. at zero two thirty and and at that point I was sold. I was done. I was I was uh, I was hooked. I'm like this is where I belong. Uh, so I found the army. Um, went to a couple of the schools um, uh, from the National Guard. You do this in active duty, uh, so you go on uh, to these courses. And uh, I, I continually fell in love because they were they were talking about in the army 
has these incredible manuals, these uh, FMs that are phenomenally boring, but uh, they're written for the eighth grader to really dialogue and digest sort of the combat battlefield. What does it mean? How do we patrol? How do we, how do we conduct the science of warfare? Now, this for me was, I was in love, so uh, I stung early, uh, went into selection, and then uh, completed that, uh, came back, went through the Q course, had some great difficulties there as well. Uh, did phenomenal in the course, but uh, what did you go? What did you go through? Were you a communicator? Were you a weapons guy? Yeah, it was an 18 Echo, which uh, I was railing against. I didn't want to be a communicator because uh, in the Navy, I, I really didn't understand the systems and felt like communication was not for me. So it was another learning point where I uh, really had to just kind of swallow that, go in. Fell in love with communication thanks to an old retired Air Force guy, Chuck Ward, wow. who uh, wow. opened up my world and really uh, trained and understood how to train me to really conceptually understand uh, uh, communication theory. Made all the difference in my mind, and I fell in love. So uh, I went down the Q course, uh, had the opportunity to do that twice, uh, thanks to, uh, again, me having to learn a few things about um uh, I'll call it the 11 Bravo attitude, like roger that and move on, right? I, I, I made one comment along the way that probably derailed my uh, first course, so I got the chance to do uh, the Q course twice. and uh, That's your so heart. Tw twice, <laughs> twice as good as the others. And, uh, and uh, But it was like you said, uh, I think your friends, uh, you said, uh, told you you needed it. Well, I needed it too. And it taught me a lot of humility. It taught me, um, one, how to, how to be that 11 Bravo in every single situation. And, and for those who don't know, that's the, the bottom line soldier in the platoon that just takes orders. And then with the attitude uh, that's appropriate for, with respect to the chain of command, just executes those orders, no questions asked. I got that's a quick a question for you. Sure. So I, I think you and I have a lot of similarities because, you know, our past were very similar. And, and I, I struggled with it, too, because, you know, I think a lot of the way I wanted to process the, the, the program was, at least in my mind, more cerebral than the 11 Bravos around me type of deal. Right. And I think because of that, I, it almost it, it, I, I, it, it, it inhibited my ability to take. The simplicity, the simplicity of the training on board to make myself better at those particulars, and yeah. and when was the, the 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 when did the light go off in, in your mind when you got rolled out of the first selection course? Uh, not quite selection, but the Q course. The Q course. Sorry, yeah. That's exactly when it went on. Is uh, I, I, my performance was excellent. Uh, I, I, I knew what I was doing. I loved it. And this is twice for me now because I've been rolled out of buds uh, medically and now uh, out of the Q course. So at this point, it clicked just like that. Uh, when I went down through the course the next time, I made one commitment, and that was just to stand up and, and roger up on every every occasion I had the opportunity. Awesome. No pushback. I am a, a frontline private in this man's army. And whatever this man wants me to do, uh, that's how I need to be applied. So uh, it was a tremendous lesson that I needed to get through the next, uh, we'll call it 10, 15 years of my career. And and I kept that attitude in every space. Uh, there was, you know, from uh, graduating the, the Q course finally and then uh, right at 9-11 going um, fast and furious for a few years. Now, uh, my company was still in the National Guard, so uh, a lot of us did uh, something, I think, similar to your background, took contract uh, security work with State Department, uh, the agency, and different uh, organizations. Um, in fact, it was in Israel where we lost a great uh, group of men there, um, uh, hit down in Gaza Strip in 2003, um, went into Iraq after that, and really started to understand 
uh, the different forces and um, who the different battlefield components were, whether it was CIA or State Department, uh, Delta Force, you know, you've got your CAD guys, you've got your SEAL Team 6 guys and Marines. And I, I really understood a lot more respect for uh, sister components and different counterparts, how we all work together. So well, that's, that's like when I got the, my, my That's one of the mm -hmm. coolest things that I found was, you know, because you get so focused and driven into – your own particular unit or your own particular group you're working with or whatever. And you're like, all right, this is all I see. This is all I know. You've got the blinders on. We're the best. Nobody does what we do. And then all of a sudden you realize you're just a, a, a little spoke in the wheel and all these other people are doing all this other incredible work. And that was for me, the big, the big wake up call too. that first deployment uh, to Afghanistan with SEAL Team One where I was, we were working with 19th group. I did it. We did a combined op. We were, you know, working with, uh, um, TF 160, you know, we were, you know, so we, we even worked with the CanSoft guys, you know, JTF two. And, and it was really mind blowing to say, wow, all these different ideas are required. And these different, these different practical skill sets are required in a battlefield that is this dynamic and what we're facing. Is that what got in your heart? You know, it was it was at that time as, as a, just an inner service contractor that yeah, it, it's um, there. Every component brings talent. It brings heart. It brings passion. And sometimes understanding where that talent is and where that passion is allows you to be more effective at what you're trying to do. I mean, great example, rolling the clocks forward several years. Um, you know, I ended up having to take uh, some really uh, we'll call it military police that affected some combat missions that we needed to get to that I couldn't get with tier one forces and, and joint task forces. So we ended up, I ended up finding the slice on the battlefield that was operating precisely where we needed to go. And then giving away our sort of, um, uh, we'll call it our, uh, our hangups, our emotional hangups, yeah. our arrogance, yeah. being able to work hand in hand with them allowed us to execute targets that I couldn't have gotten uh, with some other task force. So it really shaped my uh, perception of how to operate more efficiently across the, uh, the wide battle. Field. That's super cool. That's was super and cool. when you started seeing the positivity that 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 brings, right? The being able to expand your operational mindset, right? Your battlefield perspective. Is that what the spark was like? All right, now I want to go to the next level. Absolutely, it, it was. It was right there. I knew that uh, having that operational authority and control was going to be really important. Again, I sat in um, uh, diplomatic spaces where we didn't have control. And guys died. Uh, you know, a good friend of ours, I think a mutual friend, uh, you know, was there in the bar that night. And, and we understood that there was an ambush that was going to happen the next day, a mechanical ambush. It happened. We lost guys on that. We didn't have operational control. So my mission then was to get to the place, uh, the highest place possible to, uh, to get the effective training and make sure that I was in that seat that uh, from then on, uh, we could make those operational decisions. So Joint Special Operations uh, you know, has a number of places to go, uh, special missions operations units that are uh, effective at what they do. And uh, I knew it meant you know, another selection, another process of training, operators training course. Um, and it, in that uh, next phase of my career, that's where I went. Um, best time, it was the most uh, amazing performance sort of measures I've ever met with. And uh, it included in that, professional sort of training, uh, CIA training that, that opened up a whole different kind of mindset uh, later in my career that was, uh, you know, a real addition to round out the sort of hard edges over here with the kind of soft edges on, on the other side. Very phenomenal. After all that, I kind of figured out, wow, there's, 
there's some tools here that uh, that you talk about in your motivational speaking that are really instrumental in, in that kind of performance success. So uh, that's a that's a longer answer than you probably meant for. No, but, uh, no, that's what uh, everybody wanted to hear for sure. And and so I, I really just want people to recognize, you know, in your career path that it was, you know, it was these, you know, this significant setback in buds, right? Going to the fleet, realizing, you know, all right, with a chip on your shoulder, you know, what happened, but recognizing later down to come back to those lessons, then to find, you know, to put away the traditional stereotypes of, of army green berets or whatever, and, and to become one and then to move into the contract business and see the way, you know, diplomacy affects operational mindsets, then to move into joint special operations and really to discover where, you know, that operational authority exists. Um, but as well as, you know, cause everything that I've heard and with my friends that have made it to those levels and, and, and our brief time that we talked before that I shared with the audience before you got on, um, you know, moving to that place where all of a sudden you just start blowing through, you know, all these perceived limitations that were in yourself. And you're just like saying, no, I can do the job of 20 people. And that's what was blew my mind with you. What was that like moving to that space? Painful. Uh, <laughs> you know, to, to, be, to be brief about it, very painful. But um, it, was a, it was a welcome pain. I mean, it's, um, you know, folks that are familiar with that in different places, you know, can use an analogy to get there. Uh, you work out and you're, you want to make it to the next weightlifting uh, category or uh, you're running and you want to get another uh, two or three minutes shaved off your time, uh, all of us recognize in our own mind that the way to get there is we have to beat down those thresholds at, at painful prices. So you, you, you lift beyond your capacity until you're, you know, your arms are shaking and you burn out and then you do that enough times and your muscles grow and respond. Well, our emotional mental state kind of works the, the same way. So the critical component is someone has got to put you through uh, a consistent, we'll call it um, mental uh, weightlifting program that is always just beyond your capacity so that you continually increase your mindset of what it is you can take on in your uh, scope of work or, 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 or your operation. So the way to get there is um, you got to throw a lot of fail cycles at people. They've got to be able to fail a lot in many, what I call many fail cycles. Um, but that's not the only thing. Uh, I talk about something um, with a particular audience that is critical to in really internalizing that in a way that doesn't break the, uh, the applicant. And it's humility. And it's the same kind of humility you talk about uh, that I met with in uh, my career. If you if you don't have some uh, humility, every single time you fail, that pride is out there in front of your instructors, in front of the program, and uh, you begin to take that personally. Uh, if you're humble about it, you've got the ability to kind of wear that uh, that failure without necessarily letting it shut you down. That gets you to the next performance level, which is after you failed. Uh, how if you hadn't thrown in the towel? Because you can always quit, but if you hadn't done that, now what are you going to do? And that then uh, looks a lot like perseverance. So that humility gets you through the first stage. I've accepted that this this obstacle beat me, <clears throat> uh, but with humility, I'm going to find a way around it. I'm going to see a way under it, past it, over it, around it. Somehow I'm going to beat this obstacle, or maybe I'm not going to beat it, but I'll still achieve the end state. 
end state becomes a, a way of conceptually thinking past a linear performance measure. I know if I do A, B, C, then D, I'll succeed. Uh, but what ends up happening is once you're able to see past that in a linear way, you go, well, what's the end state? The end state is to get to, you know, get to E or whatever. Well, what if we come at it backwards? What if we come at it a different way? And so you begin to uh, break those preconceived notions in your mind that I have to complete a task a particular way or this is the only measure of success. When you have a lot of those built into your program, too many uh, things to do in too little time with too little resources, uh, it's painful and you have to still come up with an answer at the end of that. <clears throat> it's a phenomenal process, uh, but uh, it is replicatable. It is duplicatable, one, as an individual, but two, as a, as a program sort of entity as well. So it, it's a real positive message there. I, I, and that's what I, that's I love, what I love about, about talking with you about it, because you look at it, you know, uh, yes, we, we grow up and, and, you know, I get probably 50 to 100 emails or social media requests from young people wanting to go into special operations and whether it's the teams or it's SF or whatever. And they all start in this place where I believe that, that coincides with what you were talking about, a lack of humility. They don't, they can't conceptualize that suspension of, of, you know, those, all the things that have happened in your prior life leading up to that moment, you really have to, you know, submit to the program you're in. And the other aspect I love it, you know, is what you, when you go into it on one end and what you come out on the other, you can't even fathom where you're going to be. And so you have to release yourself of that expectation. Now, one of the, one of the things that I I think I would, I, I was really, I really want to understand is, and you had talked a little bit about, um, you know, growing up in Boy Scouts and your, you, you know, the, the allure of the SEAL teams or just, you know, special operations in general. You know, why initially did you want to serve at that level? What was the, your thinking process back when you were 16, 17, 18 years old? It's such a great question. And, I, you know, that changes over time. But, you know, when you're five and six years old, it's the excitement. It's the greatest job in the world. You know, you get to jump out of things. You, uh, you get to shoot guns. You're blowing things up. I mean, this is a this is a little boy growing up into a into a, an adult man. And, and what ends up happening is all those exciting uh, aspects of what what it is we saw in our early lives uh, then become formalized. Now, now they become formal processes methods, techniques, uh, the application of science in the, in the war, you know, in the battlefield, then they become really, um, um, I, I'll call it intellectual curiosity components. How do you do, how do we do these operations better? What makes a, a SEAL team uh, more effective in their space than, you know, national partners or, you know, other, other national forces? What makes the Green Berets a, a particular component in their space? Then you begin to really become intellectually curious. So I think it starts with the adrenaline pump of jumping out of planes, parachuting, scuba diving, driving motorcycles off of cliffs or God knows what, and uh, taking shots, uh, you know, with the, the greatest weapon systems. You know, this is like, it's like candy. Now, of course, you know, the old adage is, you know, they don't sell you the other stuff in the pamphlets. They don't tell you about the PowerPoint presentations or the, the briefings or the, you know, the hours of the reading. The <laughs> yeah, just, just all those uh, those things that make war really boring. Uh, you only see the punctuated, articulated, you know, drama pieces of it. So you get hooked in early for that, and then what ends up happening is, I, I think 
when you begin to measure or, or, or run through those, we'll call them a mini operation. You're in Boy Scouts, you're doing a high roads course or uh, a hike that you think is well beyond your capacity. You know, you're nine years old and you're doing a 26 mile hike with a backpack on, you know, that's, uh, you know, 60 pounds. Well, 10, 20 years later, you're in uh, the military courses doing the same thing, a hike with a backpack that's 100 and maybe 20 pounds. Yeah. So, you know, you start to you start to train your mind and then you begin to see the successes, the rewards. You begin to taste the rewards of what does it mean to be uh, accomplished, to, to look behind you and say, what, you know, wow, I just did this. I just accomplished that. I didn't know I could do that. And that that's like once you get hooked on that, it's, uh, it's infectious, you know. And, and uh, so you begin to see – how do I get better at it? How do I learn more? And that intellectual curiosity just grows. One of the cool things I love when you talk about it is is that the that it doesn't you know the curiosity doesn't diminish, right? It's not like you finish Hell Week or you get to your first platoon, you do your first combat deployment, and you're like, okay, I've seen it and done it, I'm done, right? I mean, that's it's never the case. It keeps going, and you you keep growing to a whole nother level. At what point? along your path did you start to really understand that your original perception of what it was going to be right the limits and how you were going to break three when you started to realize wow this program I'm in right now is really I'm evolving at a level I never dreamed was possible when did that start to really sink in for you um, another excellent question. I mean, there's, I'll call it levels of that. I mean, the basic level of that occurred early. And again, you're a young kid and Boy Scouts and you're doing things you didn't think were possible. So it begins to occur to you that uh, you can push through some limits, but you haven't really uh, understood it at, at an internal level. So late, late, late in my career, I'm uh, again in um, Joint Special Operations in a, in a special missions uh, program where uh, we are just a con- constantly overloaded uh, too many things to do too little time not enough resources and uh and it's frustrating and i i remember just sitting there over and over thinking man i don't have enough time to do this and then uh somewhere along the way you figure out well you know what if i can ju- if i can just uh get this much done uh i'll sacrifice this much sleep and then it becomes this much and then it becomes this much and, and to the point that all of a sudden you're sacrificing things that you thought before were kind of critical or there are components that you might be able to work without. You can't do it endlessly, but there are times that you learn to leave a few things behind. Now, once, uh, once I started seeing that and realized that, okay, the, the way to accomplish the broad range of uh, tasks that are in front of you has a lot to do with um, your judgment on what pieces you leave behind uh, I call it this sort of emotional altar. What are you going to leave on the emotional altar? <laughs> what are you going to carry forward with you? So that becomes um, then then your judgment is on it's on display because if you leave the wrong things on the altar, you're done. You know, or or, or at least you'll meet with uh, some pretty harsh uh, treatment. So you really have to have judgment and wisdom, and there's a little bit of humility that comes in that. Well, what what am I looking to do? What's the end objective? So really conceptually thinking through the end state. I started to realize, unbelievably, uh, something that an instructor said to me once at the very beginning of this pipeline is, you're going to do the job of uh, you know, four and five other people on a, on a special forces operational detachment. I thought, well, that, that, that's, a, that's a pitch. That's a sales pitch. It sounds like phony baloney. And one day I was sitting there in my, my room uh, trying to accomplish too many things, 
and I was uh, I was at the cusp of getting basically 70, 80% of it accomplished. And I'm like, by God, that, that son of a gun was right. I'm doing all the work that these four and five people are supposed to be doing, and uh, we're getting it done. And, and that's when I realized it, that something is happening here, uh, but it still hadn't yet hit me at the level that it was uh, until I could get out of that program and kind of look back on it and go, okay, now I, I really had a better understanding of what, what I had uh, undergone. And it was, it was a phenomenal process. But when you're inside that tunnel, there's just a lot of pressure. So you don't have the expanded thinking capability because you're head down and, and mission focused. That's cool. And I, and I like, I like that message to people about performance, right. And, and, and moving towards that threshold, right. Many times you're not going to see the growth happening because yeah. you're just not in that, uh, emotional maturity, right. Or you're not in the physical maturity or the mental the cognitive maturity, but it's happening and you have yeah. to have trust and faith in the program that you're a part of, if it's a good program and the training's good and the pressure's good and the positive, the positive pain is there, you know, that, that growth is happening and the wisdom is coming, but it's not in the doses where you, you know, you don't have the fire hose wisdom, you know, going, ah, right. It's, it's, it's coming, but you're having to, you know, see it in, in real time in small doses. And I, and I love that about what you're saying, because I think, so many people out there, they want instantaneous gratification. They want six-minute abs. They want to make a million dollars in 30 days. And, and that's just not the way it works. Right. Um, when was the first – like I know one of, the, one of the coolest things for me was the, the big wake-up moment was when, you know, going through making it through Hell Week. And you're just like, holy cow, I never dreamed I could do that. Now, what's cool that I like the way you talk about, because remember, everybody listening, you know, limits, you know, a high degree of your personal limits, your threshold of performance is mental. And what Jason's describing to you is it took a while in his career to really start to recognize, wow, my limits are so far other uh, advanced than other people. And, and, you know, so first question in this line is, is, you know, did you ever imagine you'd get there? And then once you were there, I, I remember you, you you talked a little bit about when you were briefing other people, you actually had to come down to their level so they could keep up with your train of thought. So could you talk about, answer the, those two a little bit? Yeah. Well, to answer the first part, it, you, whether you can imagine yourself being there, it's, um, it, it's a little... Um, you know, it's a little unfair with hindsight because you didn't realize what there was or you didn't understand what a there was. So in your mind, you think in terms of, I, I see the picture of myself in the future as a successful, you know, operative, you know, somewhere downrange doing great things. But you don't know what does it mean to actually execute all the mini details, the, the granular details in that. And, and so you never really uh, internalize how many things you'd actually have to manage. So Seeing it there is sort of like um, you see the, uh, the surface component, but you don't see the internal mechanisms to get you there. Um, then that, that internalization of that, understanding uh, how you're managing too many tasks in too little time uh, becomes a little bit more accommodated as soon as you start to go through these programs. And so uh, once that happened, it, it, blew, it, it blows you away, but I don't even think you recognize I didn't recognize it until I was able to stand in rooms with uh, peers or maybe not peers from my particular community, but peers in the, the larger community and understand what it was that made us different. You didn't, you didn't have a real tool yet to grasp 
precisely what it was that marked you different than others. And it's the same thing, by the way, uh, at other levels, whether it's regular soft or infantry. You know, you get an infantry guy who goes in the military, gets out in the real world and figures out that he thinks differently than the people around him, right? But it takes sort of comparison. You have to have a comparative. And so then you get into soft and you go, okay, now what makes us different than the infantry? Well, that's the comparative. Uh, for, for where we were, where I was operating, once, you, once I got back into that joint community, the comparatives are all over the place. You look left, you look right. Everyone's got what we talked about earlier, talent and passion. They're really good at what they do, uh, but they have a, a sort of a narrow pipeline. They have a, a smaller uh, frame of reference or scope of work. And what you realize is your scope is broad enough to kind of envision uh, incorporate their ideas and their equities along with someone on their complete opposite side, what their equities are and what their ideas are. And you begin uh, to understand, okay, I know where I have to leave my emotional sacrifice behind. Uh, what does JSOC want compared to what the State Department wants, compared to what the CIA wants, compared to what the host nation wants? Uh, you know, and then you had to kind of determine what what are the equities I can I can work with my partners. Uh, where can I get them to leave emotional sacrifice behind? And then more importantly, how can I get them there without really uh, creating turbulence or dissonance? So the understanding of, um, of, of, of what happened and the briefings that you're talking about, where you begin to start to see that uh, most people are seeing the world through uh, maybe their one particular narrow lens. And so you really have, if you have respect for them, if you really want to accomplish missions and you really want to accomplish work, you want to get back into their space and think with them and possibly uh, above them, but knowing to, to get them into the space you want them. And so that's a, that takes a lot of humility because you have to admit that your way, uh, maybe it's great, maybe it's perfect, maybe it's the best way, but your partners don't necessarily see that. The other people in the room don't necessarily see that. So you have to kill your own sort of ego, set it to the side, get into their space, live with them for a little bit, and then kind of walk across the, these little bridges with them to mentally, emotionally get them in, into a space that works well. That That's a phenomenal thing, and it, and it requires a lot of humility. But uh, once you get it, it's, uh, it's a tool of uh, operational effectiveness that's uh, excellent. Well, I love how you phrase it in terms of equity, right? And 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 where you're, you know, it's it's equity that you've worked hard to, uh, you know, assimilate to or to consume and to, uh, you know, to to one to be able to quantify what your value is in that dynamic nature of of your operational value, you know, space. But then also where you spend that equity, right? And where you make your investments. And I love how you put it at, in terms of that emotional altar and the suppression of ego, you know, the, the, the uh, conquest of humility. You know, but one of the interesting things as we're hearing all those things and about that ascension to the place, you know, that initial desire saying, I want to be at the, the top. I want to make the calls, right? Because I, I want to be in the position where I n understand how to make those calls, and then to make the calls that take care of business at, at the level you were doing it. Was it, was it, when did you pull that card out? And, and was it more nuanced instead of just, you know, throwing your collar device or whatever your little JSOC card that you threw down on the table was that, listen, I'm, I have operational authority here. We're going to do it my way. We're doing it the highway. Was that, a, was that a different, was that challenging when to spend that equity as well too? You know, I uh, I will credit a lot of my peers with uh, helping me 
always manage those cars with nuance. Uh, you know, so we never, and this is one of the things that marked our, our organization a little different is, is the, uh, the ability to share those cards without necessarily uh, blunt force trauma uh, against our, you know, our uh, partners on the battlefield. So it was always, I think we took it on ourselves, the ownership of that task, the ownership of, um, you know, throwing that card out without offending others was on us. And so uh, I remember once being in a spot, it was tremendously difficult. Uh, we had um, different equities from, uh, again, the embassy, uh, the CIA, even JSOC. All their equities were, uh, you know, leaned in a particular direction. And what I was seeing on the ground, is the only one uh, able to see this, was all single American, uh, you know, providing CT, uh, counterterrorist sort of focus analysis inside the battlefield. And, uh, and I remember being frustrated, like those guys, 400 miles away, 300 miles away, you know, 1,200 miles away, don't understand what's happening on the ground. And, uh, you know, inside you want to rail against that and just shout it to the world, like, this is what's going on. And you got to listen to me. Uh, but my senior at the time, Josh, uh, he said, hey, Jason, you, you got to get down and um, you're going to need to write this. And it's going to have to be in a way that is uh, built for the audience that's going to hear it. So thinking in terms of generals and, and ambassadors, you've got to write it uh, in such a way that they can accept it. So if you come at it from 180 degrees out from where they're thinking, they're going to reject it and uh, our mission's going to fail. So what I, what I had to do was wow. I had to go back and, and psychologically understand, well, what does that mean, uh, writing it for them? And it, we took a long time. He helped me a lot with his 30-page you know, assessment. But we gave it to them in such a way that those people who uh, hadn't seen it in, in, the, in quite the perspective that I think they uh, should have seen it had a way to take it on board. And then uh, we had success in, in what our end state was at that point. And it was a phenomenal um, we'll call it maturing process for me because, uh, you know, I didn't want to do it. I, none of us want to get down and write a 30 page assessment. I mean, we're, we're like operators. We're going to go shoot people. But uh, in this case, you know, it was the right decision and, uh, and I had great uh, mentorship. So that's cool. Cause I, that, that, you know, that always goes back to the point that I, I try and make on a repeated basis about this total commitment to team orientation or what I call the team life in frog logic. And, and to recognize, even as you're, you know that you're at the highest or some of the highest levels of 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 knowledge and you know operational capabilities but to to still say hey there's a whole nother world that people are perceiving from a different you know a whole different uh uh train of thought and and actually really what their responsibilities are too and to have the the wherewithal to say all right I trust this guy. He's on my team. He wants me to succeed. He's trying to help me. And again, I'm going to try and figure out how these guys want to think and what's going to make them comfortable with this very kinetic kind of dynamic situation. I, I love that, man. I mean, no matter how high you get on, on your, you know, your performance capability, you're always going to need that help. It's a tough thing for us um, because the, the, the better trained you are, uh, the more you really have earned the right to kind of thump your chest a little and uh, stand out in front of people and do what you said, just sort of uh, check them with a the collar device kind of thing. But um, the reality is, and this is a second greatest commandment, so you'll recognize this, but if we really truly uh, respect and, and, and want to be treated the way we would, uh, we want to treat our brothers the way we would want to be treated. Those brothers, those sisters are the, the other people out on the battlefield. And the, the honest truth is you mentioned responsibilities. They've got responsibilities. Um, you know, JSOC, we just want to crush everything. We want to destroy the enemy. 
and uh, God bless us, we will. Um, but uh, other people have to kind of weigh in, and we've got to gain uh, we've got to gain a consensus. Otherwise, we're operating sort of as uh, isolated organizations. And the truth is, um, one of the reasons we've been at war for 15 years, uh, you know, failing to crush and destroy the enemy utterly, is because we don't have consensus among our sort of our national polity. And so there's disparity. There's there's discontinuity between what our capabilities are and what our uh, what our actual responsibilities are. If we don't balance those, if we don't bridge those, then we can't succeed. And it's one of the problems we're seeing out in the national strategic realm right now is a lot of people just haven't taken the time to create enough of that continuity between uh, the organizations. We haven't quite agreed upon everything yet. So the uh, efficaciousness of our, of, our, of our battlefield technology, it, it, it's spent, and it's spent in such a way that we can't actually get a return on that investment. Wow. Doing wow. that at the small level is an important thing, and realizing it, Takes you right back to uh, eleven Bravo Stage One, man. You're a soldier. You got to Roger up. <laughs> Roger that, sir. <laughs> All right. Well, that that's fascinating stuff, and I and I think a lot of people out there are really, you know, they're they're confused about what's happening. They they don't get that that a lot of that's what's at play in in the greater geostrategic, you know, nature of our foreign policy right now, and that there are a lot of opposing views and ideas, and you know, people aren't coming together to find that consensus and it's critical for all mission success really to have a a a consensus it doesn't have to be to the back to the to the detriment where it's you know the consensus takes years and you know decades to figure it out although we seem to do that a lot <laughs> you know consensus is is critical all right i want to move into this next the next concept and and really to dig in this a little bit about actual performance thresholds where people actually have reached the pinnacle of what they can do. And, and I think we see this a lot um, in, in early in our lives, right? I, I, when I realized I was not going to be able to start over Kerry Collins at Penn State, you know, I realized I had reached my performance threshold of playing quarterback, right? When I got to in the teams, man, uh, it happened very fast in my first platoon that I was at a performance threshold that really, as a new guy, you know, I, I needed to reassess and come, you know, get back in a, a place of, all right, I've got to evolve or I'm not going to be benefiting my platoon. When was the time that you realized that, all right, I'm pretty much at my performance threshold? And what did that feel like? from a, a cognitive place, uh, a mental place, you know, a physical place and an emotional place? Yeah. Great question. I mean, I think, um, uh, the answer is, uh, probably a little, uh, maybe I'll call it deflated, disappointed, but happens a lot. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I found, uh, places where I simply was at a spot where maximizing or getting past that, I was going to require an investment that was greater than I, I could risk or afford or uh, judiciously decide. And so uh, this then goes back to, you know, principle number one for me is humility. Uh, and then you have to find ways. Again, I talk about that emotional altar. It's so important to learn how and when to sacrifice judiciously. I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, Q course, uh, we all get a training in the language. I really enjoyed uh, learning Arabic, and it was one of the uh, one of the fun parts of my career. But very challenging language, and there's a real uh, ceiling uh, before you have to make a, a, an enduring 
commitment beyond what I think is reasonable in, in the life of a uh, more than just get on your face or I'll canoe your head. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You've got you've got bandwidth. You know, you've got a you've got a well, think about it as a bank. And uh, you've got a certain amount of money you can uh, cash in for any sort of uh, you know, product, but uh, you could do a little bit of credit, put some things on credit. But at some point, if you spend so much of your emotional and mental capital on uh, this one product, in, in this case, well, the language, then uh, you won't have enough money to buy the other things that you need to get through the fight. Your, your, your shooting skills, your marksmanship, your, your briefing skills, your, your demolition skills, your, your airborne qualifications. I mean, you know this uh, special operations has a, a whole series of continual um, things that you have to get checked off on. You know, you've got to go every quarter and do this and do that. And, and so there's a lot of things you have to maintain competency in. And the more you escalate in these uh, environments, the more things you're taking on is now you're checked off and competent at this broad range of uh, tasks. You know, we call them in the military, in the army, skill level one, skill level two, skill level three type tasks. Well, by the time you uh, take on board, you know, a hundred different skill level three tasks, you've got limited amount of resources to spend your money. So again, what ends up happening is when you run into these maximized performance levels, you've got to make a decision pretty quickly uh, with judgment. Is this something that um, uh, I should be sacrificing on or is this something I need to uh, pull an investment from over here and, and weigh it in in this area? You know, you don't want to you don't want to show up at a gunfight without having invested in your uh, marksmanship, your combat marksmanship. <laughs> so, you know, that's one thing you don't you don't sacrifice. Right. What about your medical skills, your trauma and casualty skills? So uh, those then become areas where you 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 use sound judgment and uh, it takes a little wisdom, but it takes humility. At some point, you've got to realize, man, you're you're not going to be a native fluent speaker in Arabic. Uh, and if you are, uh, which is okay, there are people that do that, then you may not be native fluent in combat marksmanship or some other thing. Now, you might be able to do both, uh, but there are certain things that um, there's limits. Reaching those limits um, frequently throughout a career, uh, if you don't have the tools and the mechanisms to really uh, have confidence in yourself, faith in yourself, like, hey, I've got a limit. Uh, then you're going to be continually disappointed. Your pride is going to get checked a lot in this environment particularly because if you think you're going to step out there and you're the one man that can do it all and you're better than everybody else at everything, well, you're going to show up at a range one day and get outshot. You're going to show up at a door a door lock at some point and someone's going to pick it you know, three times faster than you. You're going to show up in a car scenario where you're trying to do a, you know, a hairpin J turn, you know, throwing, the, throwing the rear out and, and getting into a slide and someone's going to do it better than you. You're going to get your ego checked over and over and over again in this community. So if you don't have a, a mechanism to onboard some humility and go, hey, I can't be the best at everything. Hey, welcome to humanity, right? Yeah, then, uh, then this is not going to be a rewarding career for you. <laughs> if, on the other hand, you're okay uh, taking a sort of uh, your personality, your talents, and investing where, well, say, God has really given you uh, space and time to be the best at those things, uh, if you can do that with confidence and not be afraid to show up where your buddy's a little better than you at one thing or another, you're going to be fine. So for me, reaching that performance uh, level, those maximums, you never want to do it in a critical area. You know, there are some things you can't sacrifice on, but in the areas that are not critical, you've got to look at your life and take stock, take ownership of what it is you're trying to be excellent at and those things that you're okay being good at. That is that makes you capable of operating well beyond most people's, um, I think, capacity. And I love that about what you're saying. It's like, it's all right, I, I'm, I'm not going to be the best at everything. I need to be proficient at a lot, 
But, it, you know, I might have a couple things that really I am very good at. And then I maximize that with the consensus of the group around me to really yep. become effective at what that end objective may be. And I love that concept that it, it's always changing too, right? It's always evolving because we're not the same, you know, 18-year-old nugs that we were, you know, 25 years ago. And, and, and we're not going to be the same people we are today in 25 years. And I, and I love that evolution that performance can keep evolving and those thresholds change and, and, and depending upon where you want to go, if, you know, now you in your business life or you as a father because you've been gone so much. And, and I love that, that, that the way that, you know, you, I love how you describe it as making the, the right investments for you at the right time. And I think that that's a, a critical thing for people to understand. So thanks for making that. Um, one of the things that I, you know, when you hear all these things, every time I'm, I'm out there and I'm, whether it's, I'm doing corporate training with, you know, uh, uh, one of the top investment firms out there, or I'm working with a company like Revlon or, or Comcast or whatever, they all want to understand our training, right? They all want to understand, right. The, the, the programs and why are we able to take, you know, these individuals, these motivated young men in our world, and, and then, you know, in your world, you got to, I'm sure, work with some women that were exceptional as well, too. But to really, and then, you know, they had that willingness to sacrifice and to jump into the program. But then because of a, a specific, you know, order of things in the way, you know, like you said, one, two, three level, you're able to push them to accomplish those, those performance limits, those thresholds. How come most training programs out there are not like in the civilian world. And I, and I, even in, we've seen them, you know, in the military and other government org. I mean, I know some government organizations, their training programs suck, right? How come they're not able to accomplish their goals? Why do you think that is with their particular programs? Yeah, it's such a great question. It, it would have to come from uh, someone that's uh, brilliant enough to propose it that way. But, uh, and so I appreciate it because it's a challenging answer in that it involves a sort of a, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a a lot of points on a circle, if you if you imagine a sphere, and uh, so some of those points are things like volunteerism, return on investment, uh, pain threshold, pain management, and uh, the ability to um, to establish a level of commitment. So uh, let's talk about commitment first. It's it's usually gonna your commitment level as an individual to an entity is usually commensurate. Um, it's right. equal to that amount of stuff you may get back from that entity. So if your investment in them. Uh, the most you're ever going to get out of it is <clears throat> a paycheck. Um, your commitment levels going to be—it's going to meet with that paycheck. Hey, how much do I want to, you know, do this work for that amount of paycheck? <clears throat> you can never get that person beyond their return on that investment. Hey, I'm investing eight hours a day with you. What am I getting out of it? If it's just a paycheck, you can guarantee that uh, maximizing that person's performance threshold as an organization isn't going to happen. So you need to add something else to the to the mix. Uh, sometimes that's cause. Sometimes it's um, uh, the uh, the ownership that a person takes in, in a leadership role. Uh, so as a person begins to take on more return on his own investment, her own investment, then they have the ability to commit through what is then the next necessary step, which is this formula 
that we've been talking about on uh, getting people to uh, perform at a higher level. That formula, uh, you know, it's like you know, one part pain, one part perseverance, one part humility. And uh, at the end of that, you're going to get yourself a pretty high performing uh, operator. Because if I don't institute many cycles of failure and humiliating circumstances and enough pain for you and things that cause you to persevere over a durable time frame, I can't, ex- I can't, I can't expect you to then be able to have the tools necessary to be a high performer in a high stress chaotic environment. So our, our uh, trainers, our mentors studied uh, the psychology of how to get this done because they knew we were going to face chaotic environments. Um, particularly in, in, in my case, a lot of ambiguity as well. You know, battlefield with ambiguity. How do you get someone to operate through that? Well, you've got to cause them to be an individual, autonomous, thinking, dynamically responding to the battlefield person that is also uh, durable, persevering, and and humble. You've just got to do it. So in the corporate world, um, one of the reasons, or even in the military world, we fail to get to that level of performance is that a lot of entities aren't prepared uh, to extract more commitment from their volunteers than uh, what they earn. You've got to earn the ability to get that kind of commitment. When you when you get hammered down in buds and you're out there, uh, you know, eight hours a day and twenty hours a day, or you know, hell week, uh, getting served, tortured, and all this stuff. What kind of commitment did the individual agree to to stick with a program like that? The the, the funnel in is super narrow. You know, the funnel out is wide. Anybody can quit anytime. Ring the bell. Uh, select out, voluntarily withdraw. Go to the corporate world, go to other military programs. The funnel in is a little wider. Come on in. Anybody can come in. You know, there's a little bit of scrutiny. So selecting people is one of it. But because that funnel in is so wide, you know, the funnel out is just as wide. There is no sort of a threshold for distilling the the people that are most likely to endure a high pain threshold campaign. So, so to get there, uh, you've got to be able to look at your people and say, all right, how much, you know, we'll boil it down and we'll make it real frank. How much pain can I put you through before you tap out? That's really what it comes up. <laughs> <on. laughs> I love it. I love it. So if you haven't earned the right to put someone through a lot of pain, you, you're not going to be able to get them to a high performance threshold. Again, it goes back to workout analogies. Hey, if you're not willing to uh, to spend another two hours in the gym or get past your, you know, whatever your weightlifting limits, we're not going to be able to get you stronger. Uh, I can only get you as strong as uh, your commitment takes you. So it, it's a it's a two part sort of uh, uh, formula, I think. I, I love that answer. I mean, as as you know, and you and we talked about it when we saw each other when we first met each other, is that 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 application of positive pain is so essential in my <laughs> mind for pushing performance. It's it's not even funny and. And, and you know, late just and I and I shared with you that recently I worked with the uh, Boston Red Sox and and right. you know they're going through some challenges with some individuals on their team, and you know and it's like and I got asked a bunch of questions how do we how do we get these people to you know come out of this place and I and I said easy apply pain <laughs> they're like well, we, well how, how do you do that what i mean because we don't want to break them and i go trust me you won't all right there there's very specific things that you can apply to this person physically mentally and emotionally to yeah. to, to, to jar them loose to, to help them find that cause right inside of us and and you know i love you know there's that that wonderful study at harvard did a few years back where they they you know, they interviewed a bunch of people and it was like, all right, what's more important, your paycheck or, you know, what you're involved in? And theoretically, everybody says what I'm involved in. 
because it's rare that we can go out and get our dream job, right? Not many of us are able to do that. And so they, you, it's, it's, it's how do the companies teach that cause, that, that inspiration, that motivation, right? Well, one of the things that I really have identified in all this and what I think really makes special operations training different is this concept of failure and, and how it's built in. Can you, can you expand on, on your thoughts re- involving failure, how people need to apply failure to really maximize those, you know, those undulating thresholds? Right. Yeah. Again, a, a remarkable question that uh, perceives something about the human condition that we all, um, if we want to be better, have to understand. Amen. So I call them mini cycles of failure. Um, and, and what this means, uh, I like to talk in terms of controlled space failure. So in a controlled space, so think as a parent, uh, you've got your kids. Uh, think in terms of a, a, a sport team, you have your you have your uh, rehearsals, your practices, and then you have the real games. Well, you don't want to cause your failures in the real games. You want to cause those failures in places that are controlled spaces. And the reason we're doing this is so we can train the tools of how to accommodate and work around it. So here, here's what it comes down to in my mind, right? When you begin to uh, uh, apply to these programs, you're challenged beyond your capability. So you're going to fail. I uh, went to BUDS and, uh, you know, there's a couple things you're going to be really good at, some things you're not. Uh, some people are remarkably good across the board, but most of us have things that are just beating us. And those have become obstacles. But what, what happens is you have two choices. Uh, you can volunteer out and quit the program, or you can continue to apply yourself until you either beat that obstacle or someone will quit the program for you. Hey, you're done. So, so, <laughs> so <clears throat> real motivation to succeed. What ends up happening is as soon as you do, as soon as you beat those obstacles, I, I know you could think of a couple that, that were yours. Oh, uh, I know some that were mine. And as soon as you beat them, you realize, man, this is this this is an accomplishment. Now you have a tool. And what ends up happening to most people is they haven't been uh, given the tools consecutively through any programs to understand how to perceive failure. So what I look at is, um, <clears throat> you know, when we're in a place of failure, if we haven't got those tools, we tend to panic. We tend to freeze. We tend to kind of um, want to go back to a place of comfort. So living in a place of discomfort, uh, the run is too fast. Remember the goon squad? Oh. Right. Or <laughs> the obstacles a little too high, or it's a little too challenging, or in in uh, special forces type training, it, you don't even know some of those challenges. Uh, that becomes a, a complex way to really train people out. If we give you a challenge that you don't know is happening, man, it's really tough to beat that challenge. So over and over again, people either reside back in their place of comfort. Or once you have gone through enough of these, uh, these tools, these systems, you learn how to not freeze on failure and then begin to see failure less as its own thing and more as a sort of an obstacle on your path. It becomes just a, uh, uh, a sort of an in-route obstacle, if you will. And in your route, you're going to continue to move past that, uh, but you haven't necessarily figured out yet how to beat it but you're not letting it freeze you. So this then becomes, again, a, a sort of a tool that you're going to use when you meet with failure in the corporate world as a parent or when you meet with these, these cycles of failure. If you don't have the tools, if you don't have the muscle discipline, the muscle memory to not freeze and continue through until you conceptually meet your end state, then you're going to see them as failures are sort of the ending point. Okay, the, the difference between high performers and uh, those who, who see failure as an ending point is we see failure as an obstacle in our, in our journey. 
So we're ready to look past it. We're, we're able to see uh, below it, above it, beyond it. And that causes us then to, to stop thinking of them as failures and to begin to see them more as in route obstacles. This then opens up your performance capability because nothing then becomes a stopping point. Now, you combine that with perseverance, uh, the ability to persevere through a, a, an operation or a mission or a work project, the ability to persevere through a challenging place where you're raising kids that are, one of them's gone off the rails or something. That perseverance, uh, without seeing that end point as an obstacle, but or as a failure, but an obstacle, and then the humility to try to re, uh, relearn how you're going to approach it uh, humbly, looking at your, your partners, how do they do it, your peers, how do, your, how do those who support, love, and care for you see you moving through that. The point is, it shatters the mindset or the, the preconceived notion that failure is an end point, and it begins to create a mindset that uh, it's not a failure any longer, you've relabeled it an obstacle. And uh, so I think that's maybe in a nutshell how we can get those mini cycles of failure. If you don't incorporate them frequently inside controlled space, then you can bet when people meet with it in an uncontrolled space, they won't have the tools to defeat it. At all. And, and I mean, that you're, you're so spot on and people, it's, it's remarkable. Yes. You know, people always ask that question, how, you know, in the special operations, you're becoming elite, you're doing these things, you know. You know, why, what is the secret behind that, you know, behind that, the transformation, right? How do you take this kid from, you know, Podunk, Arkansas, who's, you know, has a GED, who, you know, has never seen the ocean and how in the space of eight years he's operating at the JSOC level running autonomous missions with another dude work, you know, in the most dangerous places in the world. How does that happen? And, and it's, and it's these integrated spaces of failure. It's, 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 it's teaching them where their true capital lies and how to get that equity in themselves, that humility. One of the, one of the things that I think people want to understand as they begin to now, their brains are on fire right now, listening to all these things coming out of your mouth, right? Which is awesome. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here right now, like, Dude, as soon as we're done, I'm running out. I'm going to start a new training program. I'm going to fail like 20 times today, right? right? right. And I, I love it, dude. I'm fired up. What you know? It, it's the transformations, right? It's those pot, those little spaces where, whoa! I just, I just, I came over a hurdle, or I crossed an obstacle. I, I, you know, I, I'm on a new plateau. What what are those spaces that people need to think about and look for in themselves in those three different kind of environments that we talk about? It's great. Um, I, I do it all the time. Uh, you know, as I transition to small business, I've got a great team around me. And uh, those spaces come. There, there's so many opportunities to do this. So <clears throat> we can see, we can kind of see if we, we have the understanding of what's about to happen and then who we are in that space and how we get beyond it. Uh, that becomes a tool. We'll call it a transcendent tool. A, t- nice. a tool where you get to step outside yourself and look down at yourself and go, okay, I'm going to get through that space. So I call it throwing grenades. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> like if you think about, you think about a, a firefighter, you think about some kind of combat, and uh, suddenly a grenade rolls into you know, your space. Uh, it wasn't planned. You didn't have a plan for it. You weren't thinking about it. Everybody was kind of doing their own thing. But you have to react to the grenade. Doesn't matter. It's going to change your world. Everybody from that point on has to react and flex to what is happening now, in spite of the fact that you had other plans. 
so in the uh, in my office environment, in my work environment, when we when we come up to uh, sort of uh, end state objectives. Uh, a lot of times in, in business, it moves fast. It's just like a firefight. You got to throw grenades in at the team because things change. Hey, all of a sudden we're changing the way we're going to have a disposition, or we're changing something about how we're going to uh, create this product, or how the team is going to occupy this space. And what ends up happening is, um, I recognize this from the, from the early start because I'd already come through all this training. Is I understood that on my team, uh, the players that hadn't gone through this before needed to have uh, these operations. We're in a program. We're about to. Uh, we have a plan. We know what we're doing. If we don't get enough grenades thrown at us in three and four and five of these scenarios, my team is not going to ever grow to the point where they're uh, mature and able to kind of accommodate dynamic battlefield changes. And that describes uh, war. That describes business. It describes everything. Something all of a sudden popped up, a you know, five-meter target, 25-meter target. And I've got to give my team the tools to be able to not get stressed out. Like, hey, we're changing everything we just said. I just said we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And uh, all of a sudden, the, the world's flipped upside down. We're going to do A, B, and C. Now, initially, there's a lot of, that's why I call it emotional sacrifice. There's a lot of emotion tied into the plan. Like, we've set this plan. We know what we're doing. It's comfortable. It's comfortable because I've already thought through what I'm going to do. And now you're asking me to change that and do something completely different. I'm not prepared. And uh, in, my, in my space, we had to go through that a number of times with every new player that comes on board. I recognize in my head, I'm like, if we don't have a couple of operations where I'm throwing a few grenades at the team, um, we're, we're, I'm not going to grow that person to the point that they're able to execute at the level we need in a dynamic battlefield environment. So uh, seeing discomfort. This can come in parenting. It can come on vacation. Uh, think about your planned vacation. You got. I'm on vacation now, so it's a perfect time to talk about. You get down into the perfect spot, and uh, you got the perfect hotel, and you planned everything out. And uh, it's a beach day, and suddenly it's storming out. You know that, that's a little grenade. Are you going to be emotionally uh, disconcerted about that? Or are you going to accept it and kind of find an alternate play? Hey, this is the day we're going to we're going to do our family game inside, or this is the time we're going to go see that aquarium indoors. You know, it's the idea that happens when you get into a place of discomfort. You're way out of your comfort zone. Things have changed on you uh, through no fault of yours. Then you have to begin to reframe. And uh, that's a tool, reframe uh, the space you're living in. You can reframe it this way. I'll, I'll give an example to maybe help paint it. I was a little kid. I was, uh, I don't know, I was young. I was in a school environment I didn't like. It was a private school. A little bit of hostility. Uh, we'll call it some, uh, some undertones of racism. Just some things that uh, I was very discomforted by. And I hated it. I would go home at night. Uh, and uh, in, in my head, I was, I, was, I was in this space of real pain and discomfort. And it caused me to, to, I was in tears. He was a young kid. And I'm, finally one night, uh, and I, I think it was after hearing Jeremiah Denton speak. Jeremiah Denton's a prisoner of war from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And I listened to his message. And this guy had been abused and tortured in a Vietnamese prison camp for uh, years. I don't remember, five, six years, something like this. Listening to his story uh, showed me something about myself that I didn't know. If that guy could live through that, if that guy could have peace and contentment in his heart, enjoy during those uh, difficult times. How can I not find uh, my own contentment in this time? And so what I did in, in that moment, I was sitting there one night, I could remember it like it was yesterday. I reframed this whole uh, space in my mind. I said, okay, it, this is really hard for me now. And, and I projected, this is reframing with time. I projected through time another 10 years down the road and said, if I go 10 years from now, this is going to be so far in my rear view mirror 
that I won't even remember or think about this. And it gave me a, instantly a victory. Like I was going to gain victory over those people in that space that were hostile to who I was. And so I knew right now I'm dealing with this. But 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I won't even think about this. And I was right. It, it happened. Uh, and somehow through, through that reframing process, my mind was able to achieve sort of a, a comfort in knowing that through time, I would get through this. Now, you can reframe a couple different ways. Time is one of them. Uh, scale is another. You know, this is a small thing compared to a large thing. You know, in, in my small world, what's happening right here doesn't match with what's happening on the grander scale. So that's another way of personalizing something. You know, if, 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 you, can, if you can make these connections in your own head, what does it mean to you as a person? Or, or how can you look at this, uh, this discomfort in a different way? Hey, I, I'm still here on vacation, even though it's storming. Hmm. That's better than most people right now. So reframing helps us kind of get tools to get out of the discomfort, know that you'll get past it. And again, go back to that, that weightlifting analogy, right? You're underneath that bar. Your arms are shaking. You know it, it's just killing you. But you reframe instantly. Like two, two weeks from now, I'm, I'm going to get this lift all the way through and my muscles are going to be bigger, right? You're seeing yourself as a, a better person down the road because you know that it's worth the pain you're going through at that point. So uh, hopefully that, that's a helpful answer. No, it's awesome. I mean, that's exactly what people need to re recognize. And, and I love the context of reframing, right? To literally be able to stop, you know, put a box around what you, what is coming at you in the short term, the long term, and then, it, to to gain uh you know the emotional uh uh stability in that space and then all of a sudden to just blast it way out you know t 10 20 30 years what what i love about it and what you're talking about too is here you know it's it's been 35 years from that space and now you're sharing it as a framework for to teach people about it again so i love how the ability for framing to be cyclical, right? And, and when, you know, and you talked about it a little bit earlier before, you know, you know, at, at some times you're going A, B, C, D, right? The plan is in place. Uh, right. You're going to throw a grenade and say, all right, no, we got to go, you know, X, Y, Z now. And, and, right. or maybe, you know what, we're not even going to use letters. We're going to use numbers and we're going to use fractions instead and a whole different. <laughs> and I love that fact that, you know, it, and it's and it's really it's I think the the relativity of that space time continuum, and and what's affecting us in our lives in that moment, and how we deal with it right through whether it's through the ability to accept the pain, or it's the to regress away from it to move into that comfort zone behavioral patterning. You know, I love that. Can you talk a little bit more about comfort zones? Yeah. And why do you think people need them, have them, and use them to distort, you know, the necessary framework of, of high performance thresholds. Great. Excellent question. The, the comfort zone is a place of security. We feel really secure there. And uh, so part of the uh, ability to perform past your limits and break those barriers has a lot to do with being able to um, accept the discomfort. So we, we, we use the term in the military, you'll, you'll, you'll know this, embrace the suck, right? Embrace <laughs> And uh, it happens frequently, it. and it happens all the time in your military career. You're on a road march, you're in a, uh, you're on a patrol, and it's uh, storming out, or you're freezing in the water right on Steel Pier or something. And at some point, you either you fight that in your head, 
until the point where you decide, hey, this is going to happen. I'm going to be in this space for a while. I need to accept that I'm uh, uncomfortable. Now, uh, one of the things that happens is um, you, you have a component of faith that, uh, that is required to get there. Otherwise, uh, if you have no faith that, um, again, under the bar, lifting the weight, if you have no faith that your muscles are going to grow bigger, uh, you can't live in the space of pain long. You won't accept the suck. If you don't have faith as you're lying there almost naked at Steel Pier as a Navy SEAL, young buds carrying it, getting, getting uh, hosed out of water, freezing, if you don't have any faith that the end result of this is going to be you're, you're one of the world's great commandos and that you're going to operate at that level, then you're going to punch out and quit. So faith comes in a lot of different ways. Yeah, that's my question now, man. You jumping into it, which I love about you, Jason. And and I'd hoped we were going to go into this road because what the essentially you're talking about is where is that fuel? Where is the fire in your gut? Where does it burn? Where does it start? And people right now that are going to be listening to this are going, well, well, how, Jason? Uh, you know, I, what? how do I find, what do I become faithful in? What is my dream? What is my purpose? What is faith? How, where does that start? So where it's does a, faith start? You know, it, it starts in the place where, you know, I think all the great philosophers have uh, trained us to think, which is, you know, who am I? What, what am I doing here, right? These are these, uh, these questions. <laughs> Uh, but having a sense that you have a purpose and uh, having a, an understanding of who you are, uh, you you then establish a faith in uh, kind of why you're here. It's it, it can be seen as kind of fatalistic in one sense. And here's what I mean by fatalistic. You know, uh, I talk about a time, you know, you go through a door in a uh, combat environment environment. You don't know what's on the other side and uh, somebody's going to get shot. You or him, um, him being the enemy. And uh, there's a sort of a fatalism that allows you to kind of move through that situation and concentrate on your work process, the process of opening the door, kicking in the door, whatever, and uh, getting your gun up on target or whatever you need to do. So uh, the faith there is also kind of fatalistic. You have to be okay knowing that, listen, I don't get to decide uh, my ultimate fate in the destiny of mankind. That's beyond me. And so, uh, of course, many of us, I, uh, and plenty of others find their faith in God. They have this, uh, this uh, ultimate knowledge of their end state. At the end of this life, you know, I transpire and move on to the next thing. Now, some people don't have that. Uh, so there's the faith that you still have to have that, hey, once I go through this door, um, even though I, don't, I may not have control over my ultimate destiny, uh, this is the work I have to do. I'm putting my faith in, we'll call it the uh, the randomness or the sort of uh, the chaotic sort of, uh, uh, you know, math of the situation. One of us is going to win. I've got better training. So I'm going to put my faith in my training. I'm going to put my faith in my confidence or my whatever it is, uh, my weapon system, right? And so in, in all these different places, you have multiple levels of faith. There's the transcendental spiritual faith, what's happening in my life, who am I ultimately, uh, there's the sort of the, the natural secular faith of, again, my training, my, uh, my muscles, my mind uh, capacity, my capacity for work. Now, you build those places, those little buckets of faith across every spectrum of your life. So uh, we go back to that, uh, again, to that weightlifter. I, I hate to keep beating up this dead horse, but he's got, a, a, again, a particular faith in the physiology of things. Like, hey, I, I understand how the muscles work. Well, the same thing applies in high performance. The physiology or the characteristic traits of uh, many cycles of failure mean at some point you're training the tools that are uh, human nature that at some point 
point, you have to have faith that those tools are going to kick in and work. You have to have faith that once you uh, accomplish a, a plan, a dynamic changing plan, and you do that over and over again, that you have to have a faith that that system is going to broaden your ability to accomplish almost any objective in almost any ambiguous environment. So, you know, you have lots of layers and different, uh, we'll call them handholds or purchases where your faith belongs. It's never one kind of route. It's always kind of a combination, if that makes sense. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. I think some people out there right now, their their heads doing backflips. You just you just opened somebody, right? You just put someone in a rear naked guillotine in their mind right now. But but the, what I love about it is it's going to get them thinking, and it's going to get them thinking because ultimately, what I just heard is that performance threshold, a, a requirement of that is faith, right? Yeah. And, and gaining those those. Like you said, whether it's a handhold, a foothold, a, a road march, a, a bench press, uh, operating in the most kinetic, dynamic, crazy-ass environment on the planet where it's just you surrounded by a bunch of people that want to kill you, and you have that space, that faith that you're going to be okay right. because you've done the work, you've, done, you, you've made the investment, and then that all translates into that higher degree of confidence. Absolutely. And that, that self-confidence, I mean, it's part of one of the core parts of frog logic, right, is, is self-confidence and, and, and moving into that next level saying, yeah, I can do this. I believe in myself, right? And yeah. I, I just, I, I love, man, how you frame this. It's just on point. Well, e even as you're talking about this, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not going to take any credit. I just realized, too, as you're even uh, speaking this back to me, you know, the Army, uh, the manuals teach faith. And here's, here's what I mean. Yeah, like, it's a remarkable thing. But um, what they teach are battle drills, right? And what, what they're really doing is step-by-step step, uh, walking you through a muscle, muscular movements to faith. So uh, think about the shooting scenario. You know, we, we talk about um, uh, doing it slow uh, and, and, and right before you go fast and you know accurate. So you've got to shoot slow first and get all your muscle movements down. You've got to have your breathing, your stance, your grip, your control, your eyesight. Once you put all those together, then uh, and you begin to do that over and over again, what the army is telling you, what the military is telling you is you've got to have faith that if you control you know, your, your trigger uh, squeeze and your, your breathing and your sight picture, you have to have faith that your rounds are going to splash on target, right? They're, they don't say it as faith. They just kind of they trick you into thinking it's some kind of military science. But in reality, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not. It's the, science of human, it's the science of humans. And so the same thing applies across the board. What's a battle drill? React to contact is about faith, right? Can you believe? I mean, the military teaches that if you're in a near ambush, uh, the way to survive is to fight through it. I mean, how stupid is that, right? You're going to run into the enemy's gun. Counterintuitive. It's so counterintuitive. So they're asking you to step out in faith, uh, but they just never use the word, which is probably pretty smart of those guys. I think it is. I think it's brilliant because faith, I mean, I, I know, you know, in, in my latter part of my life, my faith has become my spirituality, my, my faith in God and Christ and all that. And being that it's Easter weekend, you know, I'm, I'm immersed in going through it right now. I'm literally, you know, last night, man, you know, when I put my girls down, I, we saved that one story of him in the garden and getting, you know, judged and crucified for that night. And then, you know, today we talk about it and tomorrow we'll talk about it. And then me processing that, that sacrifice for me. And, and it's, and I'm having to reframe my faith and what my faith is in. 
in, yeah. in greater humanity, in my own human condition, in my family, in my friends, and what I'm doing, and, and whether this madness of trying to, you know, become, you know, the next Tony Robbins is even possible for some crazy-ass frogman, right? <laughs> but I have faith that I can do it because I believe, right? And, and I believe so wholeheartedly that the things that you and I are talking about the ability to push up to a whole other levels of performance that it's within the spectrum of my capability that it's that you know and even if it's if i can't conceptualize what that actually means i know i can get there if i take those little steps and have those little failures and and incorporate all this stuff that you're talking about man i i think that's the that's you know, people always want to, I, I think we really struggle in, in society now with trying to hyper simplify these, this process. Right. And, and I, I think people that, you know, when you start talking about, you know, you know, who am I and, and what's my purpose that freaks people out. Sure. Yeah. It causes fear. When you start talking about faith, it causes fear. When you talk about uh, discomfort, fear, all these things. Well, how do you, how do how have you seen in in not only your transformation, but in in what you've done, but in the training that you were involved in, in the development? And how does what level what role does fear play in us and our in our inability to reach performance thresholds? Or how did you guys use it at, to apply it as a, a teaching tool? What is fear? What role does fear play in our performance thresholds? Oh, great, great question. I, I think fear is, um, it, it's a very, it can be, um, you know, it, it's a passion. Uh, and when, when we get governed and ruled by our passions, uh, we tend to, uh, uh, we tend to miss the judgment or the, the reasoning. And, uh, what we train in the military is to really, I love your, your analogy of putting it in a box. Uh, we tend to train how to put your passion in a box and operate outside of it. Um, it's useful. Uh, fear can be useful. You shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't casually, cavalierly rush through that door without any plan or within any thought in your head. And so you have to have a fear, uh, and you have to then keep it in a box uh, that is measured against the exercise of the function, the work, the, the work process. So here's my box of uh, fear. Uh, that same door you know, scenario, in my head, I've got the fear of loss, the fear of losing my family, the fear of never seeing my girls again, uh, the fear of uh, being the, the one that loses on this equation. So it's there, and that causes you to then uh, capture it in a box quickly and then go, okay, that's where my fear is, so that should cause me to be a little bit careful and really execute my processes as well as possible. You're not always going to win, by the way. Uh, that's a little humility, right? The battlefield teaches you pretty quickly that no matter what you do, you 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 don't get to choose who wins. Uh, that, that happens uh, well beyond our capacity. So you do your processes exactly uh, to your best ability, and you can then you can match that fear with the process, with the exercise. We talked about faith. Faith is kind of that vision that overarches the end state. The end state, I want to be the best shooter. Uh, so you have the faith that you can, but underneath that, you have to exercise the muscle movements all the time. That then allows you to kind of live into that place of faith. Well, the same thing happens if you've got that fear space. Uh, it's important that you understand it and then capture it in the box that it belongs in. You're, you're always going to be, uh, you know, the battlefield or high performance, I'll, I'll call it, comes, uh, it comes with a couple of those boxes, fear, pain, 
discomfort, um, uh, insecurity, all those things are there. There aren't, there aren't magical operators that uh, have eliminated fear or eliminated discomfort and pain or eliminated insecurity. Uh, we're just as human as the rest. And so it's about understanding how to keep those in the right box and then bring in the components, the tools, the uh, exercising processes that allow us to take those and work outside of that box of, of, of pain. Passion uh, can derail sort of our, our mission objective uh, to, so often. So if we're not careful, whether it's good passion or bad passion, uh, you could think about the good passions derailing a great uh, objective uh, or bad passions. We have to keep them kind of measured. And that's the ability. I think, uh, you know, the great philosophers called it the sort of the stoic uh, presentation or well, everybody loves the Spartan warrior. What, what they were known for, the, the word Spartan, you know, becomes synonymous with laconic or very uh, sparse and not very embellished, you know, having, very, having zero passion and, and approaching, you know, death or uh, winning the lottery with the same kind of like, uh, you know, gruff kind of a <laughs> Yeah. So it, 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 it tells us a little bit about how to govern our passions. And I think that, that to me is in the, in the training programs. It's almost precisely what the, the organizers are looking for. Does this operator, does this applicant come through with so much passion that it gets in the way of his performance? Uh, are they able to take the passion at the right time and channel it or, or keep it below uh, measurable responses? In our, in our chaotic environment, we need that passion to be below a certain threshold. And that's good and bad passion. Again, I mean, you're real excited one day and then you're a, an emotional wreck the next. Well, that's a person that's, you know, out of control of their passions. Uh, so stoically kind of moving through those environments becomes kind of a, a really another way of saying governing your passions of fear, governing your passions of insecurity, knowing that um, you know, with humility, you're, you're not perfect. Uh, but if you operate at a pretty good level all the time, most of the time, you're pretty darn good. <laughs> Dude, you're pretty darn good. Oh, my God, Jason. This is, I got to tell you, man, I've had a lot of guests on my show on Navy SEAL Radio. I've had a lot of guests, but you are on point, brother. And and I think the coolest thing is, you know, as you're describing these things, it's, you know, what I always love is it's coming from a place of personal experience. It's coming from a place where you've you've applied it to other human beings as a, as a as a top instructor, you know, you apply it in your business life, you apply it in your, you know, life itself. And, and I, and, and I think that really gives you this tremendous authenticity that should resonate with everybody that's listening. And I, and I know it's resonating with me right now, dude, I'm fired up. I think I'm flying uh, uh, to your house next week and I'm going to get some new training to push my thresholds, man. <laughs> All, right. All right. So uh, the, one of the last questions I, I, I want to ask, because I think, you know, when people hear us talk about our backgrounds and past, they they say, well, you know what, that's special operations and that's, you know, that's that world requires it. Right. There's a dimension of of the threat level and uh, that in the you know, the focus level that requires that that type of evolution. How does it, though, apply in outside in your life now? I mean, as this, yeah. I mean, you're a civilian, you're retired 25 years plus, right? And a service and now you've got a business. And what are you doing to maximize your performance thresholds now where you're at in your life? Yeah, it's a great um, transition, I think, uh, for me was uh, 
what I hoped for and what I expected, which is uh, just as challenging. I came from a challenging space, so uh, I really wanted to continue to grow. I didn't want to stop that intellectual curiosity we talked about. Uh, I needed that to continue in my life, and uh, small business was a great place for it because uh, business is just as vicious as warfare. Uh, the, the stakes are different. The consequences are different, uh, but they're, uh, they're just as internally uh, poignant or important or impacting in your life. And, uh, and so in our everyday lives, and, and, and take it away from business and take it to the personal, the very personal level, everybody out there has something they're, they're really accomplished at or want to be accomplished at. Uh, whether it's art or whether it's uh, sports or whether it's uh, music, whatever they're doing in their lives, uh, the ideas that we're talking about, the tools, the systems, the, the, the mechanisms to deal with passions and failures and then process through those and exercise components of faith to the point that you're really expecting greater performance, that, that blows away the barriers of all uh, jobs and the boundaries are gone. It's a personal mission. It ought to be a personal mission for anybody listening to you, by the way, David, is already fired up. I mean, they're, they're, they're already looking for, uh, you know, the greatest inside them. And so many people are given um, uh, you know, bad information, poor dope, if you will, as we call it in the military, on how to get that because they're looking in the wrong places. You know, a lot of those tools, a lot of those systems come through uh, things that are frankly not fun, not, not, not comfortable, not fun, and sometimes humiliating. And that's the point is if your pride is out in front of you, you're not going to make it, right? If you take your pride to the range, someone's going to shoot better than you. That's the bottom line. And in, in, your, in your music career, in your art career, wherever you are, as soon as you know exactly what you're doing and you're the best and you don't need to listen to anyone else, you're done. Your performance just got maxed out. It's the moment that you begin to look around and, and, and anticipate that there are things you can learn from, uh, from the lowest among us to the highest among us. And, but you have to be judicious about it. I love uh, the, the poem by Rudyard Kipling, If, right? How to be a man. He's talking to his son and he says, if you can meet with failure and success with the same kind of attitude, you're going to do great. The world is yours. I mean, he, he exp explains that in greater terms. But the point is, you've got to be okay with failure. And you shouldn't be too. Uh, you shouldn't be spiking the football, celebrating all your successes. They're both parts of your life, and they both show and share different dynamics. That once you begin to achieve both success and failure, those cycles will start to make you a well-rounded person. You'll begin to explode through all the barriers because you're comfortable in the wrong places and the most discomforted places, and you're comfortable, but you're you're calm, you're cool-headed and collected when you're at the top of your game. You're not cocky about it. You're not brash. You're reasoned. This then makes you uh, an all-around performer in whichever stovepipe you are. We do it in business, and I work with my team a lot to help break through those barriers because, uh, frankly, you know, small business is challenging. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the things you do in there are cutthroat. It's, uh, it's a knife, I call it a knife-fighting uh, thing rather than a gunfight. I'd rather be in a gunfight than a knife-fight any day. But small business is a knife-fight, and every day it's, it's bloody and you're getting cut. And if you're not moving, if you're not sweeping, if you're not doing the right moves, you're not going to make it through the knife-fight. It's not fun. And uh, so it's precisely where I want to be. <laughs> small business is a knife fight <laughs> i love it well listen tell everybody what you're doing now and tell them about your your company and so we can send a bunch of people to your website and all that so how'd you get into what you're doing 
I love America. Um, <laughs> yeah, the uh, the undercurrent to everything I am is um, how much I really love who we are as Americans. Not black Americans, not white Americans, not Italian Americans, but Americans. Um, our story, our destiny, our national story is the greatest, second greatest story in mankind, right? Because we've incorporated ideals and things from uh, founding republics in, in Jerusalem and Athens and Rome and, and London, and we boxed them all together and exploded on the surface of mankind in, in a very unique and a very uh, distinctive form of government that has exploded in the West and shown the world um, what does it mean to govern best and govern for all. Now, the challenge with that is, uh, you know, we're 200 plus years past our founding, and uh, we're at a place in time where people are apologetic for our history, and they bemoan uh, the wrongs that we've done, and they and they they laud our mistakes rather than understanding and balancing the mistakes and the sins of America against the greatness of America. So, what I saw was a challenge uh, to us on the battlefield was I, I come home from these uh, deployments and note that our American consciousness was uh, was missing. Uh, this component of pride, missing the elements that I grew up with that I, I, I find critical to increasing the prosperity of America. Who are we? How did we get here? Was it accidental or was it deliberate? And of course, those who investigate it find that it's, it's eminently deliberate. Absolutely. But what was happening is we were losing our background. We we're losing the icons of our past and our history is being diluted to the extent that people no longer have these emotional anchors uh, that they used to be proud of because we're now in a place of criticizing all of those emotional anchors. Once we wipe out our past, then anything is possible and the changes that were, are going to come are revolutionary to the extent that they're violent revolutionary. Like in France, and, uh, you know, their, their revolution, they, have no, they had no respect for their history and so they tossed out everything that got them there. Well, in America, before we lose... Uh, those historical uh, stories, those animated passions that drove men in harder times than we exist now to create this bountiful place. I wanted to make sure I did everything I could to maintain the culture of what was great about America. So we, we started what was called the underground movement. Underground movement because in the history of the world, uh, those who speak uh, speak out for the rights of man, for the liberties of man, for the inalienable rights, have oftentimes been doing that from a place that is not, uh, it's, it's not okay in the public square, uh, usually to speak out against the king, against the tyranny of the authoritarian rule. So our underground movement, like the Underground Railroad or like the Sons of Liberty meeting in Boston in the Green Dragon Tavern to, to dump the tea from the Brits, our underground movement is, uh, is in a place underground now because in America it is hostile in the public square to think about uh, George Washington as a positive character. It's hostile to think about uh, men like Paul Revere or um, uh, we'll, we'll take a, a story like uh, the Flying Tigers or uh, some uh, great rail that was built, the Baldwin locomotive that carried American product across across the continent and, and open the West, open California to the East. I mean, these are amazing stories. It's how America was built. So, well, how do we make those popular? Well, we, we, we had the challenge. The challenge was what can you do to, to make those exciting for a uh, community, a culture right now that is invested in imagery, invested in uh, video games. And uh, we decided to take those stories and try to boil them down in, in graphic uh, t-shirts and apparel that uh, that actually resemble the things you're going to find in the marketplace. Your Abercrombie & Fitch, your Hollister, these companies that are producing great 
stuff without any meaning whatsoever. Che Guevara on every shirt out there, right? (laughs) Che Guevara is almost the inception of this thing. Like, how are our college students praising a revolutionary communist who left the world a a, a legacy of tyranny and blood? We've got our own revolutionaries, okay? They may have made some mistakes, but the point is, what did they leave the world with? And the end result was liberty. It was this the breath of uh, freedom in, in America. So the underground movement puts those stories together in such a way that we want to make it fun. If it's not fun for kids, if there's no way to share that pride in a cool space, then uh, we're, we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice. And we saw that most patriotic American gear is, is very overt. It's like an open carry. Like you put a gun on your, your hip, people see you, they, they're scared. They, they run they run to the hills, your, your professors in your liberal schools. So we wanted to sneak, uh, we wanted to sneak American pride past everyone and, and get it back into the public format. So we try to create things that are not, um, they're not going to be off-putting to the, you know, to the liberal. When you take it home and you're wearing a t-shirt on Thanksgiving, rather than saying, you know, God, guns, guts, America, you know, you get something that's kind of cooler and, and you can take it to a club and you can go out and get on a date, you can go get laid in it. <laughs> if, uh, if you can't get laid in American history, well, then maybe that's not for you. But no, okay. <laughs> It's a crude way of saying it, but what it really means is our history should be sexy. Our stories should be exciting. They should be thrilling. So we've tried to do that. The underground movement, we've been in business since 2012. Uh, even while I was in the military, we launched this idea, and it's met with phenomenal response. People take a step back, and they're breathing, and they're going, wow, someone still loves who we are as Americans. And so we, we want to get out there unapologetically and talk about the greatness, what made this country great from the beginning of its foundation and for us, to the end of World War II, all those stories are right now being forgotten. Uh, they're being left behind. And we're living in a culture and a society that has no idea who we are as Americans. They don't know what made us great. So we're trying to get that back. Well, I love it. I love it. So where, where do people go to follow the underground movement? Where are you? Where do they go to hear more of you, to follow you on social media, your website? Where is all those spaces? All right, great. So uh, you can follow me at Jason R. Beardsley. Uh, so, uh, Jason R. Beardsley is who I am personally in, uh, Twitter and Facebook and I don't know, a dozen other social media platforms. Um, our company is the underground movement. Uh, you can find it at tumshirts.com. Uh, that's www.tumshirts.com and, uh, follow us there. We have a, we have a logo or a, a motto and we believe this by the way, it's know our past defend liberty. In other words, we can't really defend our liberties if we don't know our past. It's uh, if, we're, if we're ambiguous about our rights, there's no way we're going to defend them. And that means Second Amendment. It means First Amendment. It means all the amendments. If you don't really know what they're there for or how they got there, you're going to mistake it and your arguments are going to fail in front of people that want to take those rights away. So Know Our Past is our, our Twitter handle. Uh, it's our Facebook handle, uh, K-N-O-W-O-U-R-P-A-S-T, Know Our Past. So find us there. We'd love to share. And basically, we want to spread America out there and make America, um, one, exciting, make people feel that pride again. And if you're going to go out and brand somebody's company, for God's sakes, why not brand America? That's what I'm talking about. And it's sexy. I love it. That's what I love. Well, Jason, I I just want to say, you know, it's been, again, a real honor and a privilege to have you on. And, you know, not only am I just uh, incredibly thankful and, and feel very blessed to have 
be getting to know you as a friend and, and, you know, as a peer from, you know, different perspectives, but also, you know, I mean, what you're able to do for human beings and your wisdom and how you share it is really special. And I just couldn't be uh, more blessed and thankful that you are on the Frog Logic podcast with me. So thank you. It was a real honor. And I, I got to, you know, I'll give credit where it's due, you know, you know, parents, those people who loved us, and you know, the, the military, they trained us. It's not my fault. You know, I was in at eighth grade level, and they made me this. So, <laughs> uh, some some great people out there, and everyone should tap into the mentors that that really care about them, and uh, your results are phenomenal. Thank you for what you're doing, David. This uh, this format you're speaking and uh, getting around to people and investing in and in something that means a lot to them is uh, is huge. And uh, if we don't say it, guys from our community, other people will will create that story for us, and no one no one has earned that right better folks like you so thank you amen all right have a good one let me ask you this are you ready to begin destroying your limits are you ready to explore your performance thresholds physically mentally and spiritually because i'll tell you what after hearing what jason who by the way is one of the smartest dudes that i ever met in my life hands down he's the real deal folks He knows what he's talking about. He's been there. He's lived this. He's trained the most elite people on the planet. He knows what he's talking about. So if you you take anything away from this interview, hopefully you take away that you can do more. I hope that you are inspired today. I hope you, I hope when you hear this, when you listen to this, it gets down deep inside your soul and it, and it, you know, in your gut and it starts stoking that fire, man. And the fact that you're going to start taking action today, not tomorrow, not next week, or not when you finish this now, today. Hopefully, you know, you start believing in yourself. To want more, to want to be the best, to want to work with the best, to want to inspire others, to motivate others, to make an impact on the world around you. To want more out of your life, to really find true purpose. Because if you want to be the best, you want to run with the best, you got to start pushing yourself. You got to start discovering that you can destroy the limits that you put on now, the perception of limitation. That it's really, you don't even understand what your real performance thresholds are. That you learn to embrace that fear. You find the swim buddies. You use all the things that Jason talked about. And you do it today. You don't wait a second longer. And I promise you, if you do that, you start you start putting your head down, get your ruck on, and you start charging forth. Man, you will destroy your limits. You will discover the beauty of your performance thresholds. Man, I tell you what, that's by far one of my favorite shows ever. One of my favorite interviews ever. Man, Jason, I just want to thank you. Thank you so much for all you've done for the country. Thank you so much for what you do for Concerned Veterans of America Thank you so much for the influence that you have on a day-in, a day-out basis. Everybody listening, I hope you go and you check out Jason's company. He told you all about it, where to find it, right? The underground movement. I mean, it's cool stuff. 
man, thank you. Thank you to all Jason's teammates, all Jason's instructors. Thank you to all my teammates for all those that have helped me get to this point right now. Because without you, I wouldn't be here. Without you, I wouldn't understand. I wouldn't have proof of what I'm talking about. But you taught me. You showed me the light. You showed me what my performance thresholds were. You helped me destroy limits because I couldn't have done it alone, man. I needed your help. And thanks to all the people that are on the front lines right now, operating in the darkest corners of this world, man, protecting us, protecting our families, protecting my life, what I can do, giving me the opportunity to do this right now. You're out there maxed out at your performance threshold. And I, I love you for it, man. I feel blessed. I feel truly blessed by God that you're out there doing it. And I love you. Thank you. And I want to thank all my friends around me who support me in the Frog Logic concepts. I want to thank all my teammates at Frog Logic, man, because without them, I couldn't do what I do. If you want to know more about us and who we are and what we do, visit the website, teamfroglogic.com. We'd love to hear from you. You know, heck, if, if your team or your company's struggling, send us a contact email. I'd love to come and work with you and your company and help you get to where you want to go, either with a motivational message or a corporate training team. I want to thank my family, thank my wife and my two beautiful girls who push me to the limits every day, and thank God. I want to specifically thank my mom who for helping me to believe, man, that limits, man, overwhelming majority are in your head. And I want to thank God and Christ pushing in the ultimate limits, the ultimate performance threshold. And I'm, I feel blessed. And I want to thank all of you because without you, man, I, you know, without you, I wouldn't be anywhere. And it's my honor and it's my privilege to share with you the frog logic concepts. Because after 25 years of exploring and researching, it is absolutely my mission to help you defeat the negative insurgency in your life in order to succeed in any environment imaginable. So you can't ever, don't ever, never, never forget that I'm your new swim buddy. So let's get motivated. Hey.